0: Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at
1: this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? <music> Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here.
2: They're not using just weights and measures.
1: He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible as interpreted by experts.
2: Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense if you've given any money to this you need to complain you ask for your money back i don't know about you but i find this annoying
1: what up and shalom welcome to the rob and caleb show my name is caleb hagg with me as always Uh, The Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother?
2: It's going great. That just makes me laugh. You're the new intro.
1: You like that, do you?
2: I like that. I think they're being generous.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you, sir. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to the Rob and Caleb Show. Uh, What up and shalom to everybody in the chat room. Looks like we got a decent crowd in there today. Always good to see people. What up and shalom to everybody watching on YouTube And anyone listening on demand, we are happy that you are joining us. No matter how you're joining us, we're happy that you're with us. Uh, Let's get all the, uh, you know, let's get all the musts out of the way. Uh, The Robin Caleb Show is brought to you by TorResource.com. Go to TorResource and find all sorts of free materials there. You can find free articles, free videos, all sorts of different stuff. And, of course, at our programming desk, a Gary Springer, and running all of our chat room and our website is Mark Randall. Thank you both for helping out on The Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Egg, and Rob Van Vanhove is on the other side of that camera. How you been, brother?
2: Going well. Things are going great. We're wrapping up uh, fall quarter. Yeah, at Tor Resource Institute.
1: Yeah, I'm struggling,
2: and um, I've got a lot of students writing papers. I'm excited to read what they're writing about, and you know what else is going on? Had to shovel the uh, the driveway this morning for the first time. What? Yeah, woke up like three inches of white snow. Sure is pretty, but uh, you know, got that was my my exercise this morning was shoveling snow. That's impressive.
1: Okay, I'm trying to bring down your gain a little bit. I'm gonna bring you up in the radio. Sorry, I'm uh trying to produce this show all at once. Okay. Um give me a check real quick there, Rob. Testing. One, all two, three. Right. Good. Okay. Okay. So um we got some fun things planned for today. Now, last week, should we get the uh should we get the email out of the way first? Let's get the email out of the way first, um, and let's sure. let's open this up. Mail time. The news here. Good gracious, that was loud. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is the. <laughs> I don't know if it's just in my headphones or what. Okay, here's the email that we got. Uh, this is from one of our friends down in the San Diego. California region. She says, I celebrate Hanukkah, but every year about halfway through, I can't help but wonder, would Yeshua support the decision of the rebellion had he lived then? Now, um, it should just be quickly noted that our last show last week, show 103, was on Hanukkah. Now, this comment was placed on the YouTube page. By the way, we broke 500 uh, we broke 500 uh, subscribers on YouTube which isn't a lot to a lot of people. They said I'm hot on the uh, on the mic. Okay I'm turning down the mic a little bit. Um, so uh, we yeah okay sorry. So we, we broke 500 listeners uh, which was very cool. Uh, subscribers I should say. Uh, so last week we we talked about Hanukkah, and if you missed that show, please feel free to go back and listen to it or watch it anytime you want. Okay, so the question is: Here we have uh, Kelly writing in asking about whether or not Yeshua would have supported the rebellion in the in the Maccabean time, and or be celebrating and or proclaiming it every year. Okay, now th- this right here, we we already know essentially. I know that the guys over at uh, Outcry ministries really took offense to the idea that we would say that Yeshua was celebrating Hanukkah. Uh, I think it is pretty clear, though. They, they, uh, as we stated in our last show, and and we had a uh, we had a sound clip of this. They thought it was just ridiculous that anyone would say that it. You know, it's a pretty shut and dry, uh, uh, shut and closed case that Yeshua celebrated Hanukkah. However, I think that it's pretty clear from the text that he did. Why would he? Why would they mention the Feast of Dedication? So on and so forth. Uh, it seems as though he's celebrating Hanukkah. He was in the temple. Yeah. He, he went to Jerusalem. And, jo- and John
2: ties down, use, uses holidays to tie down Yeshua's teaching. Like, yeah. you know, Shabbat, Pentecost, or, or Tabernacles. No, I don't think Pentecost is in John, but Tabernacles and uh, Passover, of course.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that he was celebrating Hanukkah. Now they're, okay. Outcry Ministries and Joseph du- Dumont can can disagree with that, along with anyone else who wants to. However, I think the, the, the text is is actually quite clear. So it seems as though Yeshua was celebrating it and proclaiming it from year to year, uh, you know, after it happened. She goes on, it obviously seems like the fight was for a virtuous reason, preserving God's word, religious freedom, etc. I think it was more than just that. Uh, you know, uh, in uh, uh, who was it? Antio, no, Antiochus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Antiochus was uh, basically making the the Jewish people bow to images of him. So we're talking about fighting against idolatry. You know, this is a question that you know I've thought about many, many times in in my life, and uh, especially recently since I've had children. Uh, how far would I, you know, how far would I allow uh, allow My religious freedom to be encroached upon, you know, if someone came in and said that that I had to uh, worship Allah, now if I wanted to uh, keep my life, would I, you know, bow to Allah? Would I fight back? Would I let them kill me? And uh, I, I certainly pray and hope. I believe with my whole heart that I would uh, uh, be happy to die before I would, uh, you know, before I would uh, do such a thing. And this is exactly what's going on with the Maccabean revolt you have people who are being forced on pain of death to bow to uh, images of Antiochus Epiphanes, and uh, they, they say no, right? So, I mean, I think that this is certainly a good cause.
2: Yeah, and just for, for Yeshua to assert the, the, the importance of the victory of reclaiming the temple, and of course, we know Josephus gives a big account that this is an eight-day celebration of the of rededication of, of the altar. Um, that doesn't mean Yeshua endorses or did endo- would have endorsed their claim to kingship. You know, he can he can acknowledge that they're Kohanim, that the Maccabees were priests, um, without you know because what we see in the Maccabean Dynasty is, down the line, they, they take upon themselves kingship as well as uh, priesthood, in addition to priesthood. And, well, and we know Rome came, it didn't last, you know, what, a hundred years, if that, and then Rome came and put a, put a squash to that.
1: She goes on, actually, I want to touch on just a little bit more of this, and then we'll get on to other things, but she says, could God have done that without the Maccabees, I I mean, he could have, however, I believe in predestination, so I believe that 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 war was predestined. I believe, uh, she goes on, I believe some of the other wars in the Torah were approved because the Father specifically told the Israelite to go in and conquer the lands slash people. But what about the events of Hanukkah? Does it line up with all the scriptures Yeshua and the apostles talk about in terms of authority, obedience, turning the other cheek, etc.? Okay, well, this is a good question, but I would say yes, it does line up, and the reason why is because once again, we, we're talking about pain of death versus bowing to. You, you have th- they had three options: bow to the false god, which in my mind isn't an option, but still, yeah. uh, 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 fight or be killed. You know, it says in the apostolic scriptures to to take your sword. So it sh- certainly seems as though uh, you know. Now, I once again, I, I, I certainly believe in peace, and that we should try to uh, bring peace whenever possible. Uh, Gary uh, Springer is uh, the teacher in my counseling cor- in the counseling class I'm taking um, right now, and uh, we. One of our required textbooks was *The Peacemaker*, excellent book, really good. Um, but he, you know, there's there's different ways to to uh, Resolved disputes, and uh, one of them unfortunately, is having to protect yourself because people are going to attack go into attack mode okay, um, so I hope that that clarifies. I think that the Maccabean revolt certainly was uh, was something that Yeshua celebrated, and uh, I think it was I think that it was a righteous battle because they were fighting against forced idolatry so yeah, I think that, you know, I think that was a good one. Okay, so um, let's move on. I have a little present for Rob. I told him I had a present for him beforehand, but I didn't tell him what it was. Now, okay. many people might know that for the past, I don't know how many, I think you started at, at show 100. So four shows now. Mm-hmm. Past three shows, you've been doing your Gematria reading. of. Uh, so he takes the show number. Right now we're on show 104. This is our 104th show. Now, a show, disclaimer for everyone out there, Rob and I do not believe in gamatria. No disclaimer.
2: <laughs> okay. They either get
1: it or they don't. Okay. So you no, either get okay. it or you don't, apparently. Um, but uh, so Rob <laughs> has taken the number of our show and figured out the gamatria for it. Here is your present. And uh, yeah, here.
2: It's Rob's gematria. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, go. (laughs) Today is show number 104. One of our first Gematria words that adds up to 104 is Ben Kalev, son of Caleb. Yeah. All right. Uh, Also, (laughs) Nahum, the prophet Nahum. Okay, so we got and, names and and uh, Samson Shimshon or Samson's father is Manoah. Those both add up. It's the same letters switched around. Here's one, Eliyahu Eliyahu. So the name of Elijah, Elijah twice. Elijah Elijah. So Elijah's fifty-two. So twice. And then here's here's one. <laughs> <laughs> Lo evinu, they did not understand. Okay, so those are our. They did there not is,
1: understand. That's not. the that's the word of the day. That's the that's the gematria of the day. They did not
2: understand. And for for those who are privileged to be sitting in the <laughs> chat room, I will type those out and you will see those here. <laughs>
1: oh man. Well, this has concluded uh, our gematria segment. Do you like that? Did you like that uh, little I sound like effect it. I I got for you? I like it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um Okay. Um, So let's move on. Again, Rob and I, for those who might not know, in November, we were so blessed to go to the Evangelical Theological Society annual meeting, as well as the Society of Biblical Literature annual meeting. Now, for those who are not aware and have never heard this show before, the Society of Biblical Literature is really the worldwide society for... Uh, biblical scholarship. No matter if you're a believer or a non-believer or whatnot, if you uh, have any kind of uh, business in the Bible, and that might be publication of the Bible, that might be publication of Commentaries or books, uh, Bart Ehrman. I uh, took a picture with Bart Ehrman. If you don't know who Bart Ehrman is, he is a atheist who uh, is a, a dynamite Greek scholar and has made the bi- a business of basically trying to disprove the Bible uh, by the from the Bible and, and from uh, historical documents. So uh, I, I I took a picture with him and tweeted out something to the effect of uh, you know keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Um. So th- I I bring this up only to say that it's not just a bunch of Christians walking around uh, patting each other on the back. No, you have Muslims there. You have uh, you know, you have Jew- Orthodox Jews there. You have Christians of all sorts of different denominations and monks and everything. Okay, and uh, then all of basically all of the major uh theological publishers are there as well. So um, you can talk to people, you might run into people who actually were on the uh, boards, you know, the translation boards of pick your favorite translation, NASB, ESV, the Net Bible, uh, NIV, uh, so on and so forth. Okay, so we, ha- uh, we we just had a wonderful time. Every year, there's uh, eleven to 12,000 people who show up for the Society of Biblical Literature. They come from all over the world. And actually, in years past, they've had uh, maps in the main hall. And what you can do is you take a pin and you put the pin in where you're from. And so it's really cool because you can see these red pins just strewn all over this map of the world from where people have come to be able to uh, be at the, the Society of Biblical Literature. And it should also be said that the 12,000 is not actually, that are usually there is actually not of an uh, accurate representation of how many are members of the SBL. And the reason being that um, it's, uh, there's many people who can't come every single year. So there's a, a, a portion of people who are not able to make it uh, to the SBL, even though they're members. Okay, so why do I bring that up? I bring up the SBL, the Society of Biblical Literature, because when you, if you're in anything Bible, if you're if you're doing any kind of biblical work, jump in here anytime if you want to. By the way, Rob. If you're doing any kind of biblical work, if you're doing any kind of biblical scholarship, if you want to be vetted, if you want to basically test your ideas, or if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to, if you've written a paper, you have a theory, or if you have a new translation or something like that, what do you do? You go to the SBL, you present a paper, and the top scholars in their field will sit in and listen to said paper and uh, you will be asked questions you will ha- have to essentially defend your position and uh, no matter what the topic is because there's going to be p- people who agree with you possibly and disagree with you okay uh, and we, right, it's
2: a for it's a forum for rigorous peer review that's exactly like, right like if you, you I mean that's that's probably the most concise way I could say it um, because you're going to be in a room full of people who've done their homework and not uh, just that, mean, not
1: just their homework, not just their homework they've gone through school and they are now they are now working
2: in specific fields keep going yeah, yeah. and so um they're they're very familiar with the terrain That's you right. know of the text of of the history chronology and so uh, even if they come from different faith commitments, they're all looking at, sitting at the same table that has the same text on it, the same Dead Sea Scrolls and, and, or whatever. you know, if you imagine all the things that they look at, It could be archaeological evidence, it could be texts. Um, uh, with the ETS, it's, it's theological, maybe doctrines. But people come well prepared, both as presenters and those who are, have their kind of ear to the ground. Um, it's just you know how we know uh, which groups we want to go see or which sessions we want to see is because we've been reading specific authors or we've we've uh, you know read their books or their articles, and we're interested in you know kind of where their thinking has has moved, and also to be able to ask them questions. you know and so it's definitely uh, it could be like a fire hose for your first time. Um, you know, because you're learning to uh, kind of dive in and start to trace the different arguments. You know, the hot topics. What are people talking about? What are they saying about it? And it takes a while. You know, to learn to deal with with that level of of scholarly rigor doesn't mean everybody. Of, of course, not not everybody agrees. That's not the point. But the point is the 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 um, research to focus and pr- promote re- uh, biblical research, to uh, take what is known in biblical research and try to sharpen it, to try to increase our knowledge and understanding of the world of the Bible and the text. And um, so you've got different groups with different, or different people with different types of ideological backgrounds, um, all wrestling over the same material.
1: And what, we, and what happens is we go to these meetings and it's, it's a little intimidating and a little daunting uh, to be in the room with some of these uh, just juggernaut scholars. Uh, you know, these guys know the text backwards and forwards, some of them by heart. Um, it's, it's just, it's an amazing time. And what happens is we go, we get all pumped up. Uh, it's kind of like a reset button uh, for us and uh, kind of gets us back on track, puts our mind back where it needs to be into our, you know, our specific fields and all these kind of things. Okay. So I know we've talked about the SBL, but I wanted to set that up because one of the things that we've ran into this week (laughs) um, is, and you know, I really don't want to, I I really don't want to come across like I'm trying to bash any any specific uh, group or anything like that. But we've been looking at um, different teachers and different Groups within uh, the Messianic Hebrew Roots realm to try and and been looking at some of the new things that are coming out, and what I've realized is that there is it's a it's a totally different ball game between uh, what is considered scholarship in the Christian world and the bi- the Biblical Society wor- world, and what is considered scholarship in the Messianic Hebrew Roots world. So there's, it's, and I I gave this analogy to, well, maybe we should read some of this first and then I'll give my analogy. Okay. Um, Let's start with the Et Sefer Publishing Group. The Et Sefer Publishing Group. Um, Now, where did we um, frequently ask questions? Was that where we got it? (laughs) Uh, man, I don't even know where to start with these guys. I, I know one this thing is, I noticed this on
2: this Bible. Now, this is peripheral to their goal, but they they call Yeshua Yahusha, Yahusha, and then they say, "Well, how can we be sure that Yahusha is correct and not Yahushua, Yeshua, Yashua, Yahushua, Yahushua etc.?" And they go on to say, um, "Oh, it's just, it's." Horrific. Okay, so basically, it's, it's absolutely horrific that this person has no understanding of Hebrew at all. Okay. Um, okay, hang on just a
1: sec, though. Let's 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 not uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so basically, this is done by a guy here in Washington State, in Bellevue. He's a lawyer. He has not been trained. I would say it's somewhat obvious he hasn't been trained. His name's Stephen P- Pigeon. He has he hasn't been trained in things. Uh, Bible. He has been, trained, and that's one of the, I think that's one of the disconnects is that people think that uh, just because they believe um, that, and we've, we've said this before, uh, just because they believe that God must give them some kind of insight that uh, he hasn't given to anyone else or uh, that they don't need any training. The interesting thing is, is that you, you when you're dealing with scholarship and the Bible, uh, to really be able to honestly handle the text one of the things that you need to be able to do is read the text in its original languages. If you're if you're doing work in the if you're doing that kind of work, and these these people are obviously trying to do this kind of work, um, you know. And so I would maybe ask uh, if I were able to talk to Mr. Pigeon face to face, I might ask him, um, if, you know, if somebody came into the courtroom and said that they were going to represent themselves, and he said maybe I don't think that's a good idea. It takes a lot of training to do this work. Uh, If they said, yeah, well, I've watched some movies and, you know, I've asked some questions of some lawyers and I think I got it, would that be a, you know, would that person be qualified? And I think the answer would obviously be, no, they wouldn't be qualified. And so I wonder why he thinks that, uh, you know, a field as vast as biblical studies and theology would be any different. Anyway, so here's their story. This is the story of the Et Sefer Publication Group. Uh, and I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to give you the very first pr- paragraph, and then we're going to go to how they translated this book. Um, the Sever Publication Group is an, is an assembly of believers who have come together to bring the unabridged word of the Heavenly Father to the world in printed form. In the late 1990s, Stephen Pigeon, the group's founder, discovered that many books and other texts were missing from the Bible. For instance, the... <laughs> yeah, right? Should I? Okay. okay so uh uh, the bible uh for the for instance the bible references the book of jasher by name and uh, and well as well as i think is what they are supposed to have there several other books which have been renamed such as the book of iddo and the book of nathan in addition the septuagint provided an entire series of books that have formerly been included in uh, included in the bible but aren't anymore Okay, so they go on to talk about how Mr. Pigeon uh, first put the Book of Enoch and Jubilees into his personal Bible, and uh, then other people started looking at it, and then they made this discovery that, uh, you know, and this is where they get into the Aleph Tav. And it seems as though that they're, uh, they're actually sacred namers as well because they have decided not to put any substitutions whatsoever into their translation. Um, and I almost want to go to a sample page to give an example. Now, this, I think, in general shows kind of uh, what we're talking about in, in terms of a, a understanding of, of language here. So this is their translation of Revelation eight. I am the Aleph and the Tav, that's et, the beginning and the ending, says Yahuwah Elohim, which is and which was and which is to come. Yeah, so, and then they put Yahuwah Zebaot. Now, they have an interesting translation of Yeshua's name. And they also have, so basically, anytime that, anytime that there's a name of God, here's maybe a better, let me give you, a, I'm sorry, let me give you one more example. This is out of Deuteronomy 11:26 through 28. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse at a blessing, if ye obey the commandments of Yahuwah Elohei Kem. Which I command you this day. So they're actually, um, when when the word has a suffix on it, a personal ending suffix, they actually are translating those into the text. Okay, so um, when I look at this, I think that they that these guys are just playing on a whole different ball game. They're, they're, I mean, they're not okay.
2: Uh, yeah. For example, one of the things they ha- just to show they say that shah the prefix shah means salvation hence the hebrew word shamayim which is the word for heaven means the waters of salvation that's an interesting jump so um (laughs) yeah and this is on the on their page on their website here there's a lot of things that are just he quotes you know, Strong's Numbers. He does type some things in Hebrew that he'll type in Hebrew, but sometimes it's backwards. It's like I, I don't know if it got flipped. But this person uh, would not be able to open up a Hebrew Torah scroll and read but, and uh, no, okay, interpret.
1: No, no. Now, hang on, Rob. In their defense, I'm going to come to their defense here just a little bit. In their defense, they don't claim, they're not claiming to have translated this this work.
2: Okay? No, I know that. I know so, that. It says here's under their their frequently asked questions, and the reason but they're th- critical of translations. Yes, they are. It says yeah, that's yeah. the problem. So it's like I'm not a translator, but I'm criticizing the work but you of other tra- translators. <laughs> I'm not a translator, but you translated this wrong. Yeah, and so that's the, um, <laughs> that's what they're doing, and that's that is that's really arrogant, is what it is. And they they're very it comes across as very kind and very humble, but really. There's an arrogance that's being masked uh, with the kindness. And
1: that's kind of what we see in the Messianic realm. In some cases, not all. You know, there are some good scholars in the Messianic realm. And uh, even scholars that I strongly disagree with, you know, at least they've, they've gone through uh, some, some hard work of, of training, right? Uh, there are some guys at the ETS SBL we disagree with them strongly. But, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're at least trying to be in that sphere. Right, and it seems like these guys—they haven't done the work. They're not willing to be critiqued by uh, by the biblical scholarship community at all, and then they're critical of of those within the the scholarship community. So this is how they translate their their uh, their their book or their uh, their Bible, their translation. It says, uh, "Is the Sefer a direct translation?" First we st- we start with <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, first we start with the premise of our election to publish the text without redaction. We have received many offers to eliminate this passage or that passage. One commentator has demanded we subtract every okay mention of Christ. Well, many claim that the New Testament. Oh wait, this is not what I wanted. I'm sorry. Um, this is the one. Most of our work was transliteration rather than translation. The translations were accomplished through Strong's Concordance with cross-references to other translation software programs. So they're using software to do this. To the extent that translation was used. We relied on existing English translations which were in public domain. The Tyndale, the 1611 KJV, the uh, Stephanus Textus Receptus, and the Masoretic Hebrew. I don't know what they're saying in terms of what translation they're using in terms of the Masoretic Hebrew. Does that mean that they're using the, the, what, the stone edition Tanakh? I don't know. Anyway, okay, as a foundational text. New translations uh, were had only in a few locations. The, strong, the Song of Solomon and Zechariah 5 are the two major departures, and they were derived from the Masoretic text. The conclusion concerning Matthew 1 was done in accord with Peshitta, so they're looking at Aramaic, well, they're not. I'm guessing that they're taking from, what, Andrew Gabriel Roth? And the conclusion in Matthew 23 was first reached by uh, Nehemia Gordon in reliance on the Shem Tov Gospel of Matthew. So uh, so this kind of shows the frustration that I think I have with uh, some of the things that go on in the Messianic realm. Here, here, here,
2: can I share a little bit on that I found? This is go. under how did you choose which books to include? It says the Mishnahs are another set of books that were excluded, as was the Zohar. Although there are reasons other than the size and volume of the work in question, the scope of these multi-volume sets render their inclusion a physical impossibility. So the reason they give why the Mishnah and the Mishnas <laughs> and the Zohar was excluded from this Sefer Bible is, be, is, is um, even though there's other reasons. It would have been impossible because, there it was huge. <laughs> it's huge. Um, it's too big. <clears throat> yeah, and uh, same thing with uh, Josephus. It's a primarily historical character, but the sheer volume of the work.
1: So what they're doing uh, is they're, they're putting in they're putting in all sorts of different books that that really shouldn't be in our canon. First of all.
2: Yeah, and what so they I guess there this is a good uh, case a case study um, because. If the person had taken even an introduction to Second Temple Judaism or something like that, they would have been um, oriented to all the translations, all the texts, all the language, the history, you know, who are the main scholars in the fields of, of, of these things and would have had a, a, a proper or, and healthy orientation to the study. Instead, this is a person that sounds like someone who goes to Barnes & Noble and reads the popular you know,
1: but okay, but this is a good question. This is a good question, Rob. And this is really the heart of the issue. Do you think that this is malicious? They're not in my mind, they're not doing no, this. I think, maliciously. I, think it's,
2: I think it's arrogance that is un, uh, unchecked arrogance, but and uh, coming across as kind, as kind and humble. Um, so
1: they're not, you don't think that I mean, they didn't make this just to. You think the intention's good, right? I do. I think the intention's good. I think. Um,
2: that- I don't. I don't know that I would say intention. I, I, I. think that the, it is, uh, this. It's a sign or a symptom, of the si- of of sickness in the body. That's what I think. Not I totally. Agree with I just that. mean in, in terms of, it's it's a sign of where we are, um, in terms of, uh, the body Messiah and the low literacy rate. It's just this is a sign of someone who has very low literacy uh, when it comes to biblical things. And but the thing is, though, if you read their website, they sound like, oh, you know, to someone who's less literate, this this person sounds very literate. You know, they're using the Hebrew words like. Mishle Yove Shir Hashirim. They're using all the, the 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 scribal way, the scribal vocalizations for the names. But when it comes to for the names of the of the books of the Bible, but when it comes to um, Joshua, they say Yashu or Yahusha. They don't the, in, in that instance. They they use their own scheme rather than the scribal you know the vowel pointing. But everywhere else, it looks like they're using the the vowel pointing of the scribes. So there's there's uh yeah again this is this is not just weights and measures but i think that they're ignorant of it i think it's um what'd you say just, they're not what they're, they're ignorant no 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 before that of their own arrogance they they're not using what just weights and measures but they don't know <laughs> they don't even know that that's uh what they're doing and that's what's sad about it um boy
1: I'm not positive, but I think Rob Roy just walked into the chat room. Welcome. I feel like big time now. We're like, we've made it. Rob, we have made it. The owner of Messianic Publications walks into the chat room.
2: (laughs) From one Rob to another.
1: Okay, so uh, we're not just picking on these guys. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I want to bring this up is, because, and maybe maybe a little history here on, on the movement of the messianic movement, so-called, uh, would be appropriate. And we've done this before. We'll talk about it very briefly again. So the messianic movement essentially grew out of the charismatic movement, okay? The charismatic movement, not, not across the board. But a large percentage of the of the charismatic movement has sh- has kind of pushed against and shunned the idea of of uh education essentially formal education now now granted there are there are uh exceptions to this rule right We have people like dr. Michael Brown who is a uh, who is in the charismatic movement. I disagree with him on many things, but he—I—I consider him a, a strong brother in the Lord. And not only that, but he is a—he's a dynamite scholar when it comes to the languages. And that's one reason that i, I really appreciate Dr. Brown is because he—he he is a good scholar when it comes to the languages, and he's—you know—he's got his doctorate in near, near Eastern languages. He's done the hard work. But as as a uh, as a majority within the charismatic movement, they have shunned the idea of formal education. Beyond this, once we get into the Messianic movement, when you have people coming out of the church, going into things Torah, things Messianic, all that kind of stuff, you have this sense that you've been lied to by the church. So the, I think the idea kind of comes into them, and this is speculation, but I think one of the ideas that comes along with this, uh, this newfound belief is that, um, well, these guys who were trained in the seminaries and trained in school... They've been lying to me the whole time, so I can't trust them. I can't trust the schools, uh, that kind of thing. This is, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, in my opinion. Okay, so uh, if you see the Sefer Bible, uh, I would just caution you, this is not a translation. And it's interesting to me that they, you know, they say, we realize that there were major errors in the KJV. How would you even know that? If you're, what do you... What are you comparing it to? Right. You're comparing it to what? The Tyndale Bible and the Stephanus Stif- Textus Receptus and the Masoretic Hebrew? English text? I don't—I mean, I don't—certainly there are discrepancies from, from uh, translation to translation, but the reason there are discrep- discrepancies from translation to translation is because the people who have done the hard work and know the languages are seeing the nuances between the language, right? They're having to make the decisions. And there's reasons why they've made one decision or the other. Okay. That being said, uh, are, <laughs> oh, Marty, oh, Marty, oh, Marty. Oh, wait,
2: I have one more I want to share here. Go for it. From the Sefer website, if I may. Go for it. Is this idea of, when they talk about the Aleph Tav and the significance, one of the things is he gets into... Uh, Kabbalah. He says that the Aleph is a Yod above and a Yod below with a Vav in between, right? And he says, and he, uh, it's just, he talks about the Aleph being the Ein the Sof, the infinite who occupies infinite dimensions infinitely. So this reminds me kind of of Andrew Gabriel Roth's uh, thought pattern in bringing later Kabbalistic uh, teachings and then trying to um, smuggle them back into uh, the Bible. And so that's just another red flag. Yeah.
1: So uh, we've talked about Marty Hertz on this program before. In fact, we did an entire show based around his emails to us. Uh, Marty Hertz believes that the, he, he runs a, A Facebook page, and I think a website too, uh, that basically says that the uh, the temple was not, the first and second temple was not on the Temple Mount. Um, That it was actually off by about, and not just off from the spot where they think it was on the Temple Mount, it was off the entire Temple Mount uh, by like, I don't know, a quarter of a mile or something. Uh, And that it was uh, in between this, uh, basically it was in the city of David next to where the Temple Mount is now. There's a picture on the, uh, in your show notes. Did I put it on Facebook? Um, Let me see here. Hang on just a second, folks. Let me try to get to Facebook. I'm going to post this picture so people can see. Uh, on our Facebook page, go to uh, facebook.com dot backslash the rob and Caleb show. Oh no, it's not the Robin Caleb show. It's just Robin Caleb show. And um give me just a second. Do we have man, I don't even know where my elevator music is. I'm I can dro- do that. I'm dropping dro- <laughs> <do do do. laughs> I'm dropping the ball today, man. I'm dropping the ball um okay so let's just put up upload a photo there it is and publish i think it's because i didn't save the uh yeah i didn't save that last time okay so there it is there's the picture it's up on our facebook page go see what it says anyway okay so the red mark and i should describe this picture a little bit you have the temple mountain then over where uh where the red is is kind of where they say that the temple mount was it's it's part of it okay so marty hurts now uh he gets on our facebook page every once in a while and he posts this stuff and for some reason i think that he thinks he's either going to convince us that the temple mount was is not the real location of the temple or that he's bringing solid evidence. Now I don't know if I should ruin this or no. I think we should just play this. Uh, okay, so let's let's listen to. Now this is the video he posted. This video is by Andrew Gabriel Roth, and you all know who Andrew Gabriel Roth is. He uh, translated. I'm going to put that in quote marks. He translated the uh, the Aramaic English New Testament. And uh, so on and so forth. All right, here we go. Here's Andrew Gabriel Roth. Now he's talking about. I I suppose we should set this up a little bit. There was a uh, there was a the Hezekiah's seal was found recently. Uh, Well, it's like
2: summer of 2009. Yeah,
1: summer of 2009, exactly. And and so they found a bunch of different stuff. They they found a ton of different things, and now they're just now. Starting to publish what they have found. So on uh, December second of this year, just a a, a week ago or whatever, uh, two weeks ago, they uh, they released what they uh, some of their findings. One of the things that they released was this Hezekiah's seal, and what this is, it was a seal that would go around documents. Okay, so let's say you know Rob Van Hoff is the king of Washington. And he says, "I need to get uh, I need to get a message to Caleb, but my internet's down. So what does he do? He writes a letter, okay, and he has this little this little almost like a button, okay, and he puts a string around the around the uh, the, the document that he's going to send me, and then to seal it up, he puts this button on and he wraps the string around the button. So now everyone knows that this button that has the seal of Rob Van Hoff on it." Uh, it's from Rob, and it's officially from Rob because it has the seal. He gives it to a courier or whatever. That courier brings it to me. I see it. I say, "Oh, it's important because it's from Rob Van Hoff, and I can see that by the seal." Okay, it's kind of like the return address that you put on a letter. Ancient return address. So this is what he's. Ta- this is what Andrew Gabriel Roth is talking about. Now, keep in mind. Marty Hertz put this on the robin, and it's still there, okay? Uh, So you can watch this whole video if you want to. We we didn't hunt this out. We did not Uh, hunt this out. This was put on to try to prove to us that the Temple Mount is somewhere else. Listen to Andrew Gabriel Roth.
0: Hezekiah's seal was found in an amazing place, in the exact right place. Previous seals with Hezekiah's name on it were not found what they call in situ, which is in their original place on the ground. They kind of made their way in the 1990s into the black market trade. And that means that you don't have pictures of its provenance where it was originally found. But here we do. So let me just show you this. This is the area of where Hezekiah's seal was found. This area right here. And you'll notice that this is the Dome of the Rock of uh, traditional Jewish people believe that the temple is below here.
1: Okay, hang on just a sec. I just want to say he's referencing the picture that is now on Facebook. So, yeah.
2: and, and just so, it was found in 2009, so he's got that it was found. No, it's just he's referring to an article yeah, that, that was, was published re- on yeah. December 2nd. The exactly. actual seal was found 2009. Yeah, correct.
1: Okay, let's keep going.
0: But we're part of a growing number of scholars— that believe the temple is not here at all. It's a third of a mile southwest in the exact area where this seal was.
1: Okay, hang on just a second. Now, this this clip is still not done. He says that we are part of a growing number of scholars who believe that this is not the location of the Temple Mount. Okay, first of all, what are you talking about? Andrew Gabriel Roth has, has not had formal training in, uh, in, in anything biblical.
2: Well, we, we're, we understand scholarship to be different things. When, when, he, when he talks about scholar, he has a certain thing in mind, similar to like the et safer guy would consider himself a scholar, Andrew Gabriel Roth's going to consider himself a scholar. Okay, but you here, know, here's— so, But that's—it's just a different word. Here's it's, here's it's,
1: my point. If you go to the, the SBL, and we're going to use the SBL as basically the measuring stick, because uh, the SBL is where you have the majority of Bible scholars in the world converging at one time. If you go to the SBL there, I, I have not heard one person present a paper, present the idea that the temple is not— is located where where Andrew Gabriel Roth is. And and here's
2: the thing, to show the dependency, the reason Andrew Gabriel Roth has the information he has, the reason that Et Safer guy has the the books in English that he has is because of scholars. At the SBL. At the SBL. And and, or, or in an archaeological society like um you know like Dr. Mazar. Uh she is a top Israeli, she's like third or fourth generation third-generation Israeli archaeologist. That means her mom or dad was one, and then her grandparent was an Israeli archaeologist. So we're talking deep, deep roots. It's because of her work. She's the scholar, and she's the archaeologist who does the, the grueling day-to-day work to, to come up with the find. I think what Andrew Gabriel Roth is doing in this case, he's taking a little bit of information, from the hard work of Dr. Mazar and running to to make it mean something in a completely different context that Mazar would go no, no, <laughs> no. But here's the and other so, thing.
1: Here's the other thing though, Rob, is that if if Andrew Gabriel Roth truly uh, thinks that that uh, that he and other scholars are coming up with these great ideas and that they are making headway in in these finds then why wouldn't they take them to places and like the SBL? It's the
2: same reason why. It's like it's the patterns of evidence movie. Remember you met the remember you met the yeah. guy. Uh, he had no idea what the SBL was, and he's already produced a movie interviewing. You know, so he was like, "Oh, I didn't even know this existed." Well, that's the problem. We have a disconnect. We have people who are out in the marketplace able to buy books. We have the dumpster diving of the internet. People go and search and find and put together their own little puzzle pieces without reference to a larger, you know, actual published knowledge. In my opinion, so that's the in, gap.
1: In my opinion, if you're going to, to, to make new theological uh, breakthroughs and try to put forth new archaeological ideas and those kind of things, you have to take them before, you know, you have to be able to defend them and present them even to the the world of scholarship that dabbles in this,
2: yeah. And here's here's the thing. I'll post. We can post this other video um, that is on the uh, on a website that actually interviews Dr. Mazar, and she takes you to the site and she shows you the site. It's it's building from the time of Solomon. It's a, it's like a, a a royal house. There's all sorts of stuff. Oh, and I, there gotta, a, I got a clip of her. I got. I there was got a, a clip garbage pit, and that's where they, they found it in this garbage heap. Um, and this is this building that they're, they've are they unearthed is from the time of Solomon. It's not a temple. Yeah, <laughs> there's, hey, there's no hey, temple there. Uh, hang on just
1: a sec, because I actually think that you might have misunderstood her. She says that that, that royal... Okay, well, hey, we're jumping ahead of ourselves. Um, anyway, uh, let's listen to the end of this clip, but the point is, is that I don't think that there's any growing number of scholars who are now believing that the temple's in a different place. I've never heard that from any scholar. Well, that's why it sells.
2: That's why it sizzles, because it's... It's like I discovered that there were books missing from the Bible.
1: okay, so the, you know the, that's what the other guy was saying in in, or, the, in this book and in, in this uh in this video, Andrew Gabriel Roth is basically saying that they found this this seal of Hezekiah okay and Marty Hertz, when he posted this video to our Facebook page what is his caption? His caption is this is this is great by the way. Thank you Marty for posting this uh, while you were away must see Hezekiah's seal, Find points the real location of the temples so the question is is why does marty and why does uh andrew believe that this has anything to do with the location of the temple let's listen there's only 23 seconds left of this clip and then i got another one from roth
0: found. so that's what i'm saying here it's found southwest of that mosque there's another arrow pointing to it here uh and that is exactly where we would expect an original seal of a Judahite king to be found. We'll get a little bit more into some detail with that.
1: Okay, so he's going to go more into de- be- he, he's going to go more into detail in that, but the but the question that I, the instantaneous question that I had is why why would we expect a seal from a king to be found first of all at the Temple Mount. It's a centimeter long. It could be moved. It could, who but those. Okay, but the point is more broad than that. The king wasn't sitting in the temple making, you know, writing his documents down and sending them out all over the place. It's not like he had his secretary doing work up on, uh, in the Holy of Holies. Why in the, and not only that, but the king was not the only one who used the king's the king's seal. It's like, do you think that when you send in a letter to President, you know, the President Obama, you say, hey, can I get your autograph? He sends you back a letter, right? With it, with the autograph, you think that he actually wrote that? No, he has a secretary working in the White House who, who you know, who prints them all out. They're not even done with ink, you know, with a pen. So the same thing is happening with this. Hezekiah has these seals. He's got people sending stuff out all over the, t- you know, all the time. Why, why in the world would we think that Hezekiah was up on the Temple Mount uh, throwing his seals around? But Caleb.
2: <laughs>
1: okay. Well, we, we've
2: been duped. Uh... We are, we've been deceived by the institutions and the, the people who built the, the mosque, and we call that the Temple Mount, and the whole world thinks falsely okay. that that's where the temple goes. Okay. And what Let's... we need to show people is that there is new, a growing body of scholars who believe. Yeah, and now this show me that seal, growing body of scholars. This seal demonstrates that we found a one centimeter seal in a refuse heap at the Ophel site.
1: That's a great question. Hey, the Nichols say, would there have been a garbage heap in the temple complex? <laughs> no, there would not have been a, a garbage heap in the temple complex. Let's go back to Roth to ask. Why now he's going to explain to us why this uh this would this this seal would be uh would point to the location of the temple
0: here we go and with King Hezekiah it's particularly interesting because, according to second kings eighteen and nineteen King Hezekiah, when the Assyrian army invaded, led by Sennacherib uh he basically took this surrender letter that Sennacherib had given him and he went into the Holy of Holies, okay, where he spread it out probably on the shoebread table facing the Ark of the Covenant uh, to pray to Father Yah. And we would expect that a king who had actually gone into that innermost area of the temple and seemed to have spent a good deal of time in and around that area, we should not be surprised that some of his official uh, correspondence, if not the correspondence itself, but one of the seals that went with them would be, in fact, in found very close to where the Holy of Holies was. Okay, and so this this is a bullseye. This is a bullseye <laughs> that tells us that uh, Hezekiah was in that part of the temple, and therefore that the temple is in that location, which matches the references in oh. Psalms. And other parts of the Old Testament. This is a bullseye, Rob. It's a bullseye because because
1: Hezekiah oh, went man. into the went into the temple with a letter. It mu- so now it must be that seal, right? We found. I think this that is seal. the actual seal. Yeah, it's the actual seal that Hezekiah took into the holy of holies. That's I mean that's how we know. And it's not that not that Hezekiah had you know hundreds or thousands of these that he was sending out, out all over the place. Oh no 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 no. There's only one, there's only
2: one seal. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. By that reasoning, what if we found the seal in Bethlehem? Would we say Bethlehem was yeah, the temple? Exactly. What if we find one out, you know, in the desert somewhere? Is that where the temple was? The Th- funny
1: part is, is that Marty this is Hertz, foolishness. Marty this Hertz, is po- foolishness. Marty Hertz posted this on our Facebook page as if this was going to convince us. Like, oh my word, they found a seal. That must be where the temple is. Really? Come on. Let's listen to the real archaeologist, the real scholar who actually found the seal and why it was in the place it was found. Here we go.
3: I'm walking into the royal building that we revealed back in 1986 and prepared for the public after our excavations in 2009. You can see that this building is beautifully preserved. It was built at the time of King Solomon and used until the end of the first temple period, meaning destroyed by, by the Babylonians at 586 BCE. We found a destruction layer and all these jars that you can see here, including-
1: Okay, hang on just a sec. So there's your timeline for this building. You have a royal building built in the time of, of Solomon. It was used all the way up until 586. That's the first temple period. That's during the time of Hezekiah, which means
2: that the temple wasn't there. Why? That's my point. That's my point. And what? What? See, how come we have these guys who call themselves scholars, but they don't actually hear out the the, scholars, the the third or fourth generation Israeli archaeologist who explains the whole the whole situation. You know, uh, one of the words he says in situ. He uses this this. Uh, this phrase meaning on-site. that They found it on-site. In other words, it wasn't sold on the black market. It was actually under under, uh, proper archaeological protocol. It was found, photographed, and properly handled um, under the direction of this top-notch archaeologist. But he's not going to hear her out. What he's going to do, he's going to take this little bit of information, he's going to run with it. He's going to say, okay, I'm done. I don't need to hear you talk anymore. I'm going to go because I have to make a YouTube video to explain to the world why we have a bullseye. Why I'm right and why you're wrong. Yeah. And it's just like this is this is the core issue. The core issue for our discipleship in Yeshua is learning how to listen. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. And what has happened here, this is an example and I know this because I, I know in just in my marriage I grow at times where I'll take a little bit of information <laughs> maybe my wife will say something Every and then I create a new like that. I create a new picture right I create I run with it and make a picture that's actually inaccurate and then it's only later it's like oh oh that's what you <laughs> meant okay so what we're dealing with here is basic communication skills that apparently Roth and I would say the guy with the Et Zephyr Bible they take a little bit and they run with it and they don't hear the whole thing Story, and that is a key problem in with our hearts individually. Are we good listeners? I like how Gary Springer like was sharing when we were in uh, in Atlanta. The first commandment is Shema, is listen, and that's a, so. God's people are a body of of good listeners, and I, I think that um, we all need to check our own hearts and how how good of a listener are we to other people? Are we taking things and running? We take a little bit of this and this, and then we run and connect the dots, or do we hear the whole story? And this is an example, sadly, now out on the Internet, fooling how many people, deceiving how many people. I'm not saying that's Roth's intention to deceive, but he's not a good listener well, ev- in actually, this situation.
1: That's a good question, because here's the thing, is that Roth has claimed that over a thousand, what is it, a thousand scholars have, have approved of the Aramaic-English New Testament?
2: Oh yeah, we, we asked them for even a couple and weren't given any.
1: Well, and not only that, but I have never seen him present anything on his on his translation at the SBL. I've asked multiple multiple scholars within in the Aramaic Studies section if they've if they've even heard of the Aramaic New Testament. Aramaic English New Testament by by Andrew Gabriel Roth. No, they haven't. So I'm wondering what you know, these are the leading Aramaic scholars in the world and I'm wondering what scholars he's had approve this. No names have ever been presented. So let's keep going. So now we know that there's a building, a royal building, where Marty and uh, Andrew both say that the temple was. Why a royal building would be standing in the middle of the temple, uh, according to them, is beyond me. Okay? And a trash heap next to it. Listen to where they actually found this and how they found this, this, uh, this seal of Hezekiah.
3: See here, including an ancient Hebrew inscription on one of the jars, which indicate that they were used by the uh, official who is in charge of the bakery at the royal house. From this building, all the bullae and garbage they were thrown from the windows of the second floor. And all this garbage, we found it as the, it was dumped from, on to the other side of the building. That's where we found many bullae, among which are our bullae.
1: Okay, so they so they found basically, you know, she says exactly what what's going on. They had this second story room. Uh th- they had the Royal Baker in this uh in this this complex. And somebody's throwing trash out the second window.
2: Probably. You know, it's what's amazing here because where they're looking, it, if up on the Temple Mount, there are stones that are so huge. Yeah. That are so immense that that they've <laughs> And they're saying, yeah, that's not the temple. That's not where thousands of people would go, you know, and worship. Rather, it's over here where we don't even. Oh, I. It's just. Uh, well,
1: I guess yeah, the, it's, I, it's crazy. I, I guess the point is, is that you know, if you're going to look, I, I'm happy for people to bring us different things and ask us to talk about them and videos and all that kind of stuff. I'm happy for people to disagree and and try to to you know to make us think when it comes to videos and stuff like that. But if you're going to post something on our Facebook page, I would expect that, you know, it's going to have some substance. I I mean, I'm sorry, but this is absolutely ridiculous. I I don't, I mean, it doesn't take, it's just mind-blowing to me that someone would think, oh, look, we found this seal of Hezekiah. This must be where the Temple Mount is. You have to connect so many <clears throat> false dots. I mean, so many false
2: dots. That's what I mean, like taking it and running. Ta- you take a little bit and you run with it.
1: Okay. Okay, and so now what I want to do is, is finally, I want to go back to two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we talked about this article, His Kingdom Prophecy, and uh it's actually, I'm sorry, the, uh, that's the blog name. The, uh, the name of the ministry is International Christian Zionist Center. And the name of the article itself is, As Gentile Believers, How Should We Then Live? And we talked about, we did a exegesis, a very small exegesis of uh, Acts 15. Okay, And so now uh, I come back to this, and, and this is not a messianic group. This is a, what I would consider a Christian group. They might dabble in Messianic Judaism, but it sure seems as though they lean way more Christian than they do anything else. And, and I'm sure what the the point that is going to be made by many of the people who disagree with us is going to be, well, if uh, these scholars that you rest so heavily on are so right, blah, 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 then why are they rejecting Torah? And I think that this not only is prophesied, it's prophesied that the Gentiles are going to reject the the uh you know certain parts of the torah because we see them returning the prophecies are very clear that the gentiles in the end times will come to the torah they'll wait expectantly for the torah the torah will go out to them that you know and the gentiles will start keeping festivals and sabbaths and all sorts of other things okay i think this is very clear within the prophetic literature and this is one reason that you have such a diverse amount of different beliefs the whole reason that you have the dispensationalists is because they're trying desperately to work with the scriptures to not allegorize the scriptures that talk about the Gentiles and, and the nations keeping Torah and keeping the festivals and all these things. The, the At least the dispensationalists are, are looking at the text and saying we can't allegorize this entire the, you know the entire Bible we have to you know we have to deal with the text itself and so what have they done they've come up with this theology that essentially tries to work with the text now it's wrong I certainly believe that dispensationalism is wrong but at the same time at least they're at least they're trying to deal with the text in some way shape and form this being said, one of the reasons that I th- so I think it's not only God that is is uh, keeping uh, that has kept the church in the dark on on certain things of the Torah. Quite some time, but I also think that it's because the tradition is perpetuated. It's, I'm not gonna, I mean, we shouldn't use the word brainwashing, but maybe conditioning. We're conditioned to think a certain way from a young age, correct? And uh, the schools that we go to and whatnot, they've been taught this way, and so they perpetuate these kind of things. Now, granted, there are some really good scholars doing work right now. Uh, Adam Smith and his family Adam's in the chat room right now Adam and his family uh, came over to our house and stayed with us uh, for several days during Hanukkah they live in Montana, we're in Washington State so it was really a blessing to have them with us um, I, for Hanukkah I gave him a gift of a couple of, of books that he was interested in and they were by Daniel Block uh, now I saw Daniel Block present at the ETS this year I actually saw him present twice. Daniel Block is a Christian evangelical uh, scholar and doctor. He's a, he has his doctorate, uh, and he is ba- uh, the the two books that I uh, that I got for Adam were uh, oh how I love your Torah, and then another one the uh, the Gospel according to Moses. And it seems, and we're trying to figure out how it is that Doctor Block. Uh, is not wearing tzitzit at this point, or uh, you know whether or not he's attending a messianic congregation. He basically says, right in the opening uh, pages of his book, "How I Love Your Torah." that Paul does not disagree with Moses, and Moses does not disagree with Paul, and that uh, that certainly uh, Moses seems to say that the Torah is good and wonderful and that uh, it's a, a blessing to believers. And so Paul could not be disparaging of the Torah. So then he looks and he tries to say, okay, well, then uh, Paul must be saying something else. And what does he do? He says that that uh, in the very beginning uh, pages of this book, he says that the Torah is the way that God sanctifies His elect. So we have we have good Bible believing evangelical scholars who are now coming to a deeper understanding of the Torah and what it means for believers. Even Dr. Walter Kaiser. Who is a dynamite scholar? Uh, you know. Now, granted, he believes in built-in obsolescence. This is a problem. However, you know, he's having to deal with the Torah itself and the implications of the Torah for a believer, now, even though he believes in built-in obsolescence. And I don't think he's fully uh, nailed down how he believes what he believes about built-in obsolescence, um, because we've you know I've talked to him in length. Anyway. So this, uh, getting back to this uh, this this article, as Gentile believers, how should we li- then live? This gentleman basically has put out a perfect exposition of Christian theology, using all of the heavy hitting scriptures, heavy hitting I should say. That's the quote marks heavy hitting scriptures against one Torah theology, or keeping the or that the Torah is the way of sanctification for all believers. You know, I wanted to go through some of this, but we—I mean—I don't think we really have time to get deep into uh, into any of these verses. But it just shows, uh, you know, even this right here. This is not scholarship itself, and this goes back to we talked about one of the uh, we talked about one of the scholars at the uh, SBL. One of the first papers we saw, Rob was just fuming mad because uh this scholar didn't seem to have done (laughs) any work right and talk about that for a few seconds rob
2: well it we were we went to a session and i kind of feel bad because i i hooked uh the whole tour resource team i'm like hey guys come with with me let's check this out they're talking about um the the food laws in the new testament or jesus in the food laws or something i'm like come on it's got to be good you know um, and I didn't recognize any of the names of the scholars, so we all slept our stuff over there and sat down and that uh, the one professor from, I think he was from Europe, basically he was, he, he was just saying, yeah, you know, Jesus came and abolished <laughs> the food law, the diet laws. He ate a pork sandwich after he rose from the grave. And well, he didn't literally say that, but I mean, that was he's the saying, tone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just we were just like going, is this SBL? Are are we are we at SBL?
1: Well the point is, I think the um, point the point about that lecture was that he was not coming up with any new ideas himself. He just basically said, Yeah, we just, you know, we, we assume that this is the case. You can't say we assume at and then the, at and the then SBL. When you're, yeah,
2: yeah. And then uh, Tim Haig asked a question about uh, Mark seven nineteen at the end this word uh catharid zone whether it was you know the text issue whether it's an omic- spelled with an omicron new at the end or an omega new and which anybody who would, who's at going to be delivering a paper on mark 7 and actually have a handout for that has mark 7 in it that they would have encountered this textual issue because it's a, a, a crux issue well uh, tim asked him that question he's like uh uh, I don't know. Deer in headlights. Yeah, he didn't even know that there was this. Uh, uh, th- so so I was very disappointed with that. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it was also encouraging. As strange as that sounds, it's encouraging. It means that, that the SBL is a place to come. And, you know, even someone who hasn't probably you know they're given a paper on something they haven't researched for a long time they have an opportunity but that person is given an opportunity he might not ever be able to give another paper at a, a jesus in the food Laws session i don't know but but at least he w- had an opportunity he came and he got the interaction and my hope is that he went home and he looked up mark 7:19 and he uh, looked up the text issues and he's going you know what that guy had a really good point and i was blindsided that is a good Thing. So I'm not not just to beat up on the guy, but just say, look, he came, he had an opportunity, he got feedback, and now his job, if he's if he's a Christian, if he's a believer in Yeshua, he will now have to go and and be take that correction, and that'll shape his next phase of his growth in Messiah. But on the other hand, if if he just well, I'm going to give a paper and I'm going to leave and I'm not going to listen because I'm right. Well, that person's going to be stuck no matter where they are.
1: But there's more to that story than just than just seeing a bad paper at the SBL. And the and the the, the extra part of this story is actually proves our point about a level of scholarship at the SBL. L- the next day, my dad and I were sitting down in the cafe having breakfast and uh, and having a cup of coffee. And who walks by? This gentleman. And my dad stops him and says, "Okay, you know, let's talk about this variant in Mark Seven, blah blah blah."
2: Oh, I didn't know this. And one.
1: so, okay. so the guy, the guy sits and says, "Yeah, you know, you're right. I sh- you know, I now that I think about it, uh, you know, I, I should have looked into this textbook. I should have looked into this, you know." Uh, and so, basically, first he's say- first of all, he's saying, "Yeah, I was unprepared, and I should have been more prepared." That's number one. Number two, he's he is aware of specific textbooks. And his Greek is good enough that he's able to dialogue about these things intelligently, even if he made assumptions that he shouldn't have made. And when we bring up the point that he's just accepting Christian doctrine and not actually dealing with the text, he agrees and says, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. Okay, so, so, so all of these things are to say that there is a level of scholarship there that, that you know, I'll give my analogy now. Going to the SBL, you got all these juggernaut scholars who are like, "Let's play a game of football." These guys are like the NFL. They have, they have, uh, you know, they've trained their whole life. They've gone, you know, they've worked. They, they hone their skills. They get out there. They are the best of the best. They get out on the field, and it's like the best NFL team you've ever seen in your life. Okay, and then you got guys like these guys from the Sefer Bible, like Andrew Gabriel Roth and you know these guys, and they say, yeah, we're going to play this game of football. They get there. Not only have they never played football before, they've watched a couple of games on TV maybe, they know a couple of the rules, but never have they never played football before. They actually think that, that when the other team says football, they mean tennis. So they're showing up with their little shorts and their rackets and their headbands, and they're getting ready to to bat this this ball around. Uh, you know the the court. They're playing a totally different game, and that's the point. You have scholarship that's playing this one game, and these guys are over here. They're not even playing this. They're not playing by the same rules, and they're not even playing the same game. And that's what's sad is because in the messianic movement, we have we have such a light into the Scriptures, in terms of seeing the Scriptures as a, as a whole, we're taking the Scriptures as a whole, we're using them as a whole, we're seeing a difference between justification and sanctification, which I think is lost many times within the church, okay? We're seeing these different nuances between between what's referred to as the Old and New Testaments, right? We're seeing this – we're seeing it all gel together, and the opportunity for us to make breakthrough scholarship in the Christian and scholarly world is there. But instead, these guys are throwing it all away. They're saying they're not playing by the same rules. That's sad. All right. That's what I got. What are you <laughs> laughing at? Smith. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I just I just made my joke about the NFL being the N F uh, the Hebrew Nun Pei Lamid the Nephilim uh, Nephilim and the Giants <laughs> oh, New York wow. Giants Wow um, Yeah That's a Good Point Caleb You Know it, And That's It's Culture there, There's An Aspect So I Don't Know If Education Is The Right Word Anymore For Us To Use It's Not That It's Not That That Safer Guy Or Roth Or These Guys Are Uneducated. I know we've used that, but I think it's. I think we need to refine our our vocabulary because it has to do with have they received proper training? Are they are they disciplined? Do they have what is biblical wisdom? Which biblical wisdom? It says, uh, "Who is the wise person? One who hears and increases their understanding. They're always listening. They they accept correction." That's what biblical wisdom is. If Just read the Proverbs. Or, shameless plug, listen to Gary Springer and Rob Van Hoff. Yes. Michelet, a conversational commentary on the book of Proverbs. Yes. Um, but, yeah, that's what I'm seeing. is It's what I see in terms of biblical foolishness. And I think Gary Springer would back me up on this. With the Et Sefer or with the Andrew Gabriel Roth's claims here, they are, they are fitting the bill of what the Proverbs say is a fool. And it's not a personal attack. It's not an attack on, on them as a person or their heart. It's saying the behaviors and the and the products of their behavior. So what, you're not. Oh, they,
1: hang on, I want to make sure you're not calling them fools. You're saying that they are using foolish.
2: Uh, no, I'm saying I'm standards. saying that that their their works, are the works of fools. The the website with the, the you know the et safer, the the, what's the, the Aramaic New Testament that Roth produced and now this that is the fruit of foolishness it's the fruit of fools um, that's and that might be upsetting for them to hear that but you know that's the bible says that you know you'd be quick to hear and slow to speak you'll receive training you'll receive instruction you'll receive correction and i'm not seeing evidence of that in in among those those quote scholars i am using the danger quotes, but you scholars. know
1: what, but you know what we we can take a little bit of of hope and uh, joy in the fact that we do have a generation that's coming up now. you know, I might not disagree with everything these uh some of these guys are are uh necessarily believe, but you have great believing god fearing men like Joshua Ensley like uh you know. Uh, like Gage Diffie and uh, like Ryan Blackwelder. These guys are going to seminary. They're doing the really hard work. They're learning the languages. Gage is in his fourth year of Greek right now. Uh, Joshua Ensley, uh, you know, he went through years of Greek. And uh, and Ryan Blackwelder, he's up at Trinity you know, his he he's taking he's basically becoming a linguist. He's taking Hebrew, Greek, uh, Aramaic. You know, he's he's all over the place. You know, you have uh, you have Doctor Benjamin Noonan. I think of him as a young guy because I think he's the same age as me. But him and his wife both have their doctorates, essentially in in uh, in in uh, Near Eastern languages. Uh, Doctor Noonan is I'm he's a he's a he's a good scholar now. Certainly, uh, I would disagree with Doctor Noonan on some of his theology, but I, you know, I I appreciate his work, and I think that uh, you know he's a God fearing, Bible believing man, and his family uh, is you know his family is in the messianic realm. So uh, we can take courage that there is uh, there are these there there are these men coming up, and and there are also women. Christy Anderson was at the ETS and SBL with us. She's she's being trained in in uh, in biblical uh, topics and theology. Uh, so you know we can take courage in the fact that there are people who are doing the hard work of of uh, and putting their putting their nose to the grindstone and uh, and really learning uh, the languages and learning things about theology and the Bible. Okay, anything else before we uh, sign out here, Rob? Nope. All right, fine. Make it easy like that. Make it easy. All right. Well, hey, we've had fun. Uh, Send us all your ideas for show topics and everything. Seehag at com, or vanhoff at com. You can also put things on our Facebook page if you want us to talk about them. Or you can comment on our YouTube page. Okay. Uh, We hope that you had a great Hanukkah and uh, that you were blessed by it. And that the light of the Messiah was the true light that shined for you and your family during that time. And join us next week in the chat room. And yeah, I think that's about it. That's all I got. So until next time, we hope that this conversation glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.